want to ask you this, mor- this morning a, a question as, as we begin. I want to ask you this. Have you, have you ever really thought, sat back and wondered why God has placed you in the unique position that he has placed you in this morning? For example, if you have a job right now, why are you working where you're working at? For some of you, you're asking that question and going, really, why am I working where I am at? Maybe you're wondering, as a freshman in high school this morning, why does God have me here at this school? What's, what's my purpose? What's my, my place? Why does he have me on this team? For some of us, we're at that place in life where we're wondering, why am I retired and what am I to do with this new season of life? What am I to do with it? And so why does God have us in the unique place and position right now in this world that he has us in? To answer that, we're going to go back to Bethlehem this morning to allow the story of the Son of God becoming man to communicate to us why God has placed us in this time, in this place, in the position he has you in right now. You see, God doesn't have us here just merely for religion's sake, for going through the motions, or for going somewhere and just simply being served, but God instead wants us to have a relationship with him that sends us out just as the Father sent Jesus. Am I desire this morning is that we would truly be liberated, set free to the calling that God has for us in the unique position that you are in. Now this morning, I know as Thomas read the text, you're like, well, did he get the wrong email? Did he get the wrong verses or something? This isn't Christmas. This isn't the Christmas Eve service. What's going on here? Something is awry, all right? But we're going through Luke. And we're going to walk through Luke, and we're going to walk through this story, because that's what Luke is doing. He's telling a story about Jesus, and he is presenting to Theophilus and to, obviously, many other readers, this story of who Jesus is, and he gives these very exacting truths. And so this isn't just a story that is to be placed in December, right? (laughs) It's really a story that should speak to us every day. Now... I just put up my Christmas lights yesterday. I took them down, went outside, maybe a little late on that, all right? But I will tell you this, I haven't turned them on, okay, since the end of December. But I do have some neighbors that keep turning them on, all right? Not mine, theirs. And evidently, uh, they haven't looked at the calendar yet, all right, or have forgotten. Um, But they have their lights on the inside on, so they're still celebrating inside and outside as well. I don't know. I, you know. Now I feel convicted. I feel convicted. Not sharing the story. I feel like I need to go check on him now. I really do. Annette, will you remind me? Maybe I need to go do that. Maybe, maybe I'm the one with the problem. All right. All right. Okay. But what I do want to do is look at this humble birth story of Jesus Christ this morning and see the stunning reality outside of the festivity, outside the heightness of Christmas, and really ask, what does this mean for me? What should this cause me to treasure and ponder when it comes to my life, 
And so to do this, I, I want us to look at the story, and so we'll do this, um, and, and we'll pull out some nuggets, but really at the end of the day, I want us to go away with two points. That's it, two points, okay? And we'll get to them in just a bit. But let me tell you the story. Here's what happens in Luke 2, 1 through 5. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census excuse me, taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And so Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. And so Luke describes the setting. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of the times of the Roman Empire, which was ruled by Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor. And then you had uh, Caesar Augustus's cabinet, you might say. And Quirinius was the governor of Syria on his cabinet. And so Caesar Augustus would give the laws, and in this case, he was issuing a census that was to be taken of the entire land. And so Quirinius, just like a good cabinet member would do, would do as the emperor says. And so he uh, led forth this census. Why was the census taken? Well, it was to impose taxes and to make sure people were paying taxes and probably trying to get as much tax money as they could out of the citizens. It also maybe had um, another goal was to get participation maybe in the military also as well. And so the census was taken. And so Luke paints this picture of the political setting. And so what I want you to see here is he paints a picture of the powerful, of the powerful in society. Those who are in charge. And then humbly, what does he do in verse 4? Joseph. Enters Joseph and Mary. And they went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, to where? To Bethlehem. As we saw last week, Mary, so many decisions, so many things going through her mind, right? And here she is. She took care of the baby in her womb. And she waited. And here was Joseph on the other side as the angel came to him and said, hey, this is what God is doing. And he remained faithful and continued to love Mary through this most unique experience. And here they are together on their way to Bethlehem, to the city of David, to where that was where David was, or excuse me, where uh, Joseph was from. And so they register there, and look what happens in verse 6 and 7. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we read this, and a lot of things start going off in our head, right? They were searching for a place to stay, and there was an angry innkeeper that wouldn't let them in, right? That's obviously an embellishment, okay? That's not in the text, right? And obviously they find a place, whether in a cave, some believe, or maybe a guest house, and there's a manger there, a feeding trough where obviously animals would eat out of, and there's a lot of ideas there. And, but what we truly find here is here is the all-powerful one, Jesus himself, who was born in the humble confines in Bethlehem. 
And so in verse 8, it continues. It says, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And so who were shepherds? Shepherds, most likely in that culture, were, were crooked. Most of them were. They were unclean. They were the lowly of society. And so do you see what Luke is doing here? He, he's painting a picture of, yes, here are the powerful in society. Here's the powerless. Here's the lowly. And look who God visits. Look who God comes to. And so it's a beautiful picture. And so these shepherds are in the fields. They're up in the hills of Bethlehem. They're protecting their flock, probably from animals that would threaten uh, their sheep. And maybe even uh, protecting baby lambs. Many believe that. And usually the lambing time would usually be around March or thereafter. And so probably this birth time of Jesus is probably not December 25th, okay? It's probably more like spring if we follow what's going on here. And so this occurs, the shepherds are there, and what happens in verse 9 is amazing. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, this birth announcement that the angels give to the shepherds had some familiarity to it. Because it said there will be good news. You see, there's records showing that when Caesar Augustus was born, that the birth announcement came out as good news to the people. And so what you have here is a, is a very common thing, a familiar thing that would have been announced about a Roman emperor, a ruler. And not only does it say good news, but there is a savior that's born. That also would have been said about Caesar Augustus as well and the announcement of his birth that, hey, here is a savior, a savior for the Roman people. And so there was common phrases, and so the shepherds most definitely would have been familiar with this. But this wasn't just a Roman emperor, right? This was Christ, the Messiah. This was Jesus, the Savior for all people, the deliverer for all people, being born in the small little town of Bethlehem. And then verse 13 and 14, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased a better translation is peace among those whom his favor rests and so what are the angels now filling the sky with worship glory giving glory to God praising God who is in the highest he's in the heavens it's it's where Christ has been for eternity but now God in the flesh is coming and dwelling on earth. And as a result of that, what's he doing? He's bringing peace, shalom, the sum of God's blessing to whom? To those whom his favor rests upon. He's bringing peace. And then in verse 15, it says, when the angels had gone away from them into the heavens, 
The shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then. See this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph, the baby, as he was laying there in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them from the angels about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told by the shepherds. But look at verse 19. And this is where I want us to ask a question this morning. But Mary, imagine that. Here's mom. (laughs) Sitting back. And what's she doing? She's treasured all the things. Pondering them in her heart. Everything that's happened. And then it says about the shepherds, they went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Now shortly after this, here's what Luke does. We get a very quick snapshot of Jesus from a baby to a young boy and growing up just like that. We don't get a lot of details. He's presented at the temple. They give an offering as was done with the firstborn that would be born. Simeon prophesies over Jesus and says literally that before him is the salvation of the world. And then we see Jesus growing in wisdom and growing in stature. He's becoming strong and growing in the grace of God that was upon him. And then in Luke 2, 51, it says about all those things as he grew up that Mary treasured all these things about her child. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you think Mary was treasuring? What do you think she was pondering? I remember when our firstborn was the only one in the home. (laughs) Annette and I treasured so much those early stages. We'd ponder often, wow, What's, what's Noah going to be like, right? What's he going to do? <laughs> and now oftentimes we, we look at our kids and we think, oh my goodness, please slow the boat, right? Please, please slow this thing down. And times of pondering and treasuring aren't as often because it's just whoa, whoa, one thing to the next, right? But you do that. So as moms in here, you especially know what it's like to, to sit back, this newborn and even that firstborn, the treasure and ponder. She was treasuring a lot because this child of hers was God. Was God. I want us to ask this morning as we think about this story, this beautiful story. When we look at it, what do we treasure? What does it cause us to ponder? What does it cause us to think about right now? Well, I'm going to give us just two things this morning to walk away with from this that I I think that God wants us to walk away and truly treasure about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so here's the first thing. And and guys, I I think they're they're simple and, and, and just what they, and what I'm going to say, but, but in what they are, they're so full of meaning. And, and so the first one is, is simply this, is that you and I are to worship Jesus. Real simple, right? <laughs> Woo. 
That's big. Worship Jesus. Real simple, but, but so big. When we read this story, we're to be in awe. And I pray that you are this morning, that God has sent his son. Now, I'll be honest with you, for some of us in here, we hear this story, we hear the pastor up there saying these things, and we're like, man, I've heard this stuff before. You know what? Okay. But let me ask you a question. Do you stand in awe of the Son of God taking on flesh? Do you? Are are you still blown away by that? Because God wants you to to truly be amazed by that, to be astonished by that, and to never lose that awe. In fact, he wants that awe to grow and grow and grow. And so as we reflect on this, what are we really reflecting on? What is this story telling us? Well, let me just give you some text to help us in that. Text that maybe you know, but I want you to remember this morning. Because what is God doing here in this story? In John 1.14, it tells us that the Word, the eternal Word of God, became flesh. That's the Son of God. He became flesh in this time, right here in Bethlehem. We see this, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul tells it this way, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself willingly, taking the form of a servant, a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And so he became like us, Paul says, though he was without sin and he dwelt among us. And then Hebrews 4, 14 through 15 says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. And so what happened in these nine months from the conception to the birth, Jesus passed through the heavens. That's what's happening. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, here's the good news of that. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one that's been tempted in all things as we are yet He is without sin. And so he was not born in the palace like Caesar Augustus, but was born outside in Bethlehem. He didn't lay down in a fancy wooden ivory bed like an emperor, but in a feeding trough. Bethlehem was too little, Micah says, a small city, a dumpy town. But how fitting when we really think about it. Because Jesus came. And what did he come to? And why did he come? He came to our mess. Did you hear that? He came to our mess. And so, I don't know when you hear that, but I I pray that it would just cause you to just kind of do this this morning. (sighs) Thank you. Thank you. I mean, so often... I don't know if you're like me, but so often we feel like we have to have it all figured out, right? And then we have to have it all together. And the good news is that Jesus came because we don't have it figured out. Because we don't have it all together. We don't. But that's what he came to. That's, that's why he came. He came for the messes of life. Because life is messy. It's messy. 
We think about his life, right? He came and he was betrayed. He was betrayed by his friends and he was betrayed by members of his family. He was lied to. He was mistreated. He was poor. He was homeless. He was mocked. He was beaten. He suffered greatly. He suffered great hurt and pain. He was tempted yet without sin. He even went through death. And so here's the deal. He gets it. He sympathizes. He understands. And so if you're in here this morning and and you're in the mess, right? You're in the mess. Here's the deal. Is I want you to know that Jesus is right there with you. (laughs) Because guess what? That's why he came. And so... For one moment, whatever your mess is, okay? I don't want you to feel like one moment. That that's not something that you could let somebody know because you're embarrassed. Now, I will say this. There may be some sin that we're in that, that is embarrassing, that is humiliating, and maybe God wants us to feel that, the weight of that, most definitely. There's sometimes there's things that we're going through and they're just life. They're just the reality of life and we can't control them and we necessarily can't help it. But we're just in the mess. I want you to know, man, that's why Jesus came. And Jesus didn't want you just to to be silent and just keep it all to yourself and just begrudge through it and grudge through it. No, he came to help. And as we talked about last week, the church... It's his community of help. Because we're not to be a people who ever act like we have it all figured out. We're not to be a people that act like we have all the answers. <laughs> no, we're, we're to point to the one who can help. We're to point the, to the one who has the answer. And so Jesus came. He came to dwell in our mess. The Bible says in Romans 5, 6, and 8 that he came to die. Listen to how it talks about who he came to die for. It says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, oh, I love that. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... We weren't the good man. We weren't the righteous man. We weren't the religious guy who had it all figured out, right? And he says, that's okay, because guess what? That's what I came for. I came for sinners. I came for sinners. That's what Jesus has done. That's the mission that God sent him on. That's why in John three sixteen, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's who he is. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So that they would believe in him and accept his grace. Knowing that on their own they cannot have a relationship with God. But through Christ alone they can. And he can save them. He can change them. And he can make them good. He can make them right. And only he can with God. And so we were created to worship the incarnate one, Jesus Christ. And so when we hear 
why God sent Jesus, why this story is here, and the full meaning of it, it should cause us to step back and go, wow, wow. So you and I are to treasure Jesus above all else, to worship him, the one born in Bethlehem, the one who would die at Calvary. We are to worship him with our life. And so the incarnation bids us to treasure Jesus with everything we are. The dominant goal of the incarnation is our worship, to worship him. Now, I share that this morning because I'll tell you what I was going to do today. Is I was going to share this story, and I immediately was going to go, well, hey, here's what we got to do because of this story. And I don't think the story of Jesus and why he came is just about a task. And we got to be careful with that because the first thing that we are called to do is to worship and to treasure Jesus. And so I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that. And so the second thing is this. It's the word mission, right? So worship. That's the chief end of man is that we would worship Christ and enjoy him forever above anything else. That he would be the cry and the love of our heart. But secondly, I want you to understand what flows from a life of worship is a call to mission. Jesus says this. He's praying to the Father on behalf of the disciples, and I also believe on behalf of the church. And he's praying, and listen to what he prays in John 17, verse 18. He says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And so as Jesus was sent into the world by the Father, so he's saying, I send my disciples, I send my church into the world on the same mission that I came on. And so what's our mission? Our our mission is to spread this message of the incarnation of God, God taking on human flesh, and Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. And so the mission still exists because the message is still needing to be told. But I want to hold on a second. (laughs) It's not just about task. Task is important. It is. Before I get further on the task, what's the first thing? Worship. (laughs) I want you to get that. Because I want you to hear that. If the chief theme of our lives is not worshiping Jesus and enjoying God in him forever and being astounded by his grace freshly every day, I believe this, then we have no good business of endeavoring to bring others into an experience that we ourselves aren't enjoying. I believe that. And so it's not only the most missional among us, but all of us who need reminding again and again that mission is not the ultimate goal of the church, but worship is. So before I keep going on with task, do you get that message? And so we're sent. John 20, 21 says, the Father sent me, I also sent you. But what are we sent for? Real simply, you and I are representatives. We're representatives of the one born in Bethlehem. We're representatives of the one who died 
at Calvary. And that's what Paul told Timothy. He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all, Paul says. We're messengers. Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus as Lord, as Christ, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. That's what Paul says. So we're representatives. We're messengers of this message. Don McLeod writes this, and I want you to listen to this. It's got a couple of kind of punches to it, okay? So just bear with it. Listen to what McLeod says. He says, Jesus did not, as incarnate, live a life of detachment. He lived a life of involvement. He lived where he could see human sin, hear human swearing, and blasphemy. See human diseases and observe human mortality, poverty, and squalor. His mission was fully incarnational because he taught men by coming alongside them. Becoming one of them and sharing their environment and their problems. For us, as individuals and churches in an affluent society, this is a great embarrassment. How can we effectively minister to a lost world if we are not in it? How can we reach the ignorant, the poor, if we are not with them? And how can our churches understand deprived areas if the church is not incarnate in the deprived areas? How can we be salt and light in the darkened ghettos of our cities if we ourselves don't have any effective contacts and relationships with the Nazareths of our day? We are profoundly unfaithful to the great principle of incarnational mission. The great prophet came right alongside the people and shared their experience at every level. He became flesh and dwelt among us. The goal of that is not to, to get a punch in the gut. That's not the goal. No, the goal of that is to sit back and say, wow, that's my calling. My calling is to come alongside of. My calling is to dwell among. My calling is to the mess. That's where Jesus went, and that's where he has called us. This means for some, yes, that they're called, they're sent overseas, they're sent to mission fields. You betcha, the Israels and others, the marshals and other people who have been sent out. But, God has called us to the unique place and to the position that he has us in right now for this calling of being sent, just as Jesus was sent. That's why I love one of our members here, and I'm, I'm mentioning his name because I'm going to quote him, is John Gardner. And, and I was having coffee one day with John Gardner, and some of you guys might be like, oh my goodness, what John say, all right? It's good, right? I love what he said one day. We were, we were leaving Starbucks, and we are outside talking, and he said this, and I loved it, and it, it stuck with me. I, I even wrote it down, and he said this. He said, a pastor friend of mine is, is, is inviting me often to come with him to Africa and to see what God is doing, to see what the Lord is doing, and I loved what John said. <laughs> I love this. He said to his friend, he said, hey, listen, why don't you instead come with me to my place of work at Jennings Plumbing. I love that. Because you know what that says to me? 
It says to me that, that John is saying, I'm sent to the place that God has me at right now to live out the mission of God. And that's what he wants for all of us. Because all of us are in a unique position and place right now in this world for this calling. Whether you're a student, God has you. Whether it's Creekview High School, whether it's Hebron, whether it's the colony, whether it's Corumdeo, I'm going to miss somebody, but whether it's you at that school, your middle school, your high school, wherever, your college campus, God has you there. Not just to be a student, but to be his representative, to be his sent one. To be his sent one. Whether you're in plumbing, <laughs> whether you're a lawyer, some of you guys in here with different types of management positions, in sales, whatever, God has sent you there, not mainly to be a salesman, not mainly just to be a lawyer or a plumber. God has sent you there to dwell among and come alongside the mess so that you can be a representative and ambassador of Jesus Christ. And so it is with your different roles of moms and fathers and wives and husbands and you name it. If you're retired, there is purpose to your retirement. There is purpose. More than just mailing it in, right? There is purpose. And it's still to be sent. And so, as Peter says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you take this personal, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. The whole church is a priestly people, a servant people, a kingdom people, a gifted people, endowed with multifaceted gifts in here. I look around here and you guys are so gifted. And by the Lord, you are graced with ministry. And so we as a church, we are sent. Not merely as pastors, not merely as elders. If you want to call yourself laity, if you want to call yourself church members, Whatever the case, it is all of us. And it says in this wonderful book that I've been reading by Paul Stevens, I want to read this to you. He says this, the only true picture of the church is a moving picture, a daily or weekly gathering just like this, and then dispersion. Gathering and then dispersed. The church is present in the world in the person of the church member, especially the laity, that's, that's us. I include myself in that, by the way. <laughs> that's all of us. Listen to what he says. He says, it was the laity who reached the Roman world with the gospel. And the billions of unreached people in the modern world today can be reached only if every Christian is mobilized. The lost cannot be evangelized or discipled by professional supported workers alone. And I'll just be brutally honest with you, and, and this isn't necessarily a word for the ridge, even though I want you to hear this, but I think the Big C Church is so dependent, 
so dependent on professional supported pastors. And so I pray that you hear that today, that God has placed you in a unique place position. He's placed me as the pastor of this church and other staff members to be on this staff. But we are sitting with you this morning hearing this message simply as this, that we have a unique place and position just as you do. And just as you are sent, so are we. And the only way that we will reach the billions of lost people is that all of us realize that when we leave this place today, we are sent. We are sent with a mission, just as Jesus was, to come alongside, to dwell in the mess of this world, and to tell people about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so have you really thought through why God has placed you in the unique position that he has placed you in the world right now? He has placed you in this unique position right now to worship his son first and foremost, that your life would flow and toward, uh, move toward the worship of Jesus Christ. But secondly, we're called as those sent, each one of us. And so I pray this week that we would embody the calling. See, the calling here is really a calling we all have. Too often we, we mix calling and vocation together. We all have different vocations. But the calling is the same. And so I pray this week, as you worship Christ, as you find times to, to read the word of God, to pray, to listen to worship music, and to treasure Jesus as the Son of God, the Lord of your life, I, I pray that that would overflow into a life sent to hold out the gospel, whether it's at the gym tomorrow morning, or whether it's at your school tomorrow morning, or whether it's at your place of work or on the train as you're going downtown, or whether it's tonight when you're putting your kid to bed, that you would know that all of us have many different roles, but we have the same calling. It's to hold out Jesus, our only hope. Let's pray.